For the week of August 16th, 2009, this is Showbiz Sandbox, Episode 16, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines in the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Los Angeles, I'm Karen Woodward. And in New York, I'm Michael Giltz. And in Los Angeles, apparently I'm David Poland. Depending on how old you are, if you don't know who David Poland is, <laughs> oh. then... Well, well, I mean, he has a very lengthy and honorable career. He began his career at the Chicago Tribune, and he then went to Entertainment Weekly. He was, of course, the editor of Rough Cut, where he began the hot button. At the time, it wasn't a blog, it was a column, but, uh, of course... Before blogs existed. Exactly. Uh, and then uh, he moved the hot button to his own outlet, Movie City News, which has been around, I want to say, for seven or eight years at this point. It, our seventh birthday is in October. So, yeah, there you go. And and now, of course, the hot button has changed to the hot blog. And you were telling us during prep what, what uh, the reason was for that. Well, the thing is, I was always committed to the, the reason I started the hot button was because I felt that a daily column was missing from the film industry in general. I mean, we had Army Archer, but nobody else was doing it daily at that point. Uh, we were really at the very early stages of the Internet, World, World Wide Web. I think there were less than half a million sites back then. Um, and we were one of the few prominent movie sites. So I thought, you know, daily column, nobody's doing it. That's exciting. So I did it for a bunch of years. Uh, and eventually, towards the last, I think around year seven or eight, I started the hot blog also uh, and was blogging and doing a column. And slowly you realize that a column is a different animal and there's something valuable about it. And yet the pressure of the internet and the speed and everything else, uh, you lean towards the blog. So the blog ate the column, and the column on its 10th birthday kind of said sayonara, and we went to blog format. And you're also on Twitter, and is your Twitter handle at David Poland? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll place a link to that in the show notes. And of course, when does your, uh, you said you're doing something on, on video, kind of a, a video podcast. Well, we do a few things. Um, I do the do reviews on video these days. It's kind of a new thing. And then I do uh, DP3O, which is 30-minute interviews with talent, all kinds of talent. We just put up Robin Williams a couple days ago. and uh, But a lot of, you know, the movies that are coming out, indies and big movies, everything else. So that's been interesting. And then we have uh, Super Movie Friends, which we just launched last week, uh, which is basically three or four people hanging around talking about movies that are coming out the next week. So we find different journalists who are around town and uh, just chat. It's still an evolving process, as I, I like to see these things and how they come together. Um, but we really haven't had a problem getting two or three people to show up. It's really, have they seen Band Slam? You know, it's harder to deal with. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, but this week, Inglorious Bastards will give everybody plenty to talk about. And uh, I think we're actually going to get into Antichrist as well. So should be an interesting show this week. Oh, that, there's a lot to say about Antichrist. I mean, I, I still think as much as uh, that film got slammed, it can when Michael and I saw it. I still think that people were talking about it two weeks later. They were talking about it after Can. So... Whether you loved or hated that movie, it was effective. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is with any art film, you know, it's this art film, it's a horror film, what is it? Uh, any film that starts with a child jumping out a window is, you know, is a movie that 80% of the movie-going audience is not going to start with. So you already start with a movie that's kind of uh, a smaller group of people who might be interested in any way. And uh, those people are more interested in the art, and Von Trier is an artist, whether we like it or not. Well, this week, uh, we won't be talking about Antichrist so much, but we will be talking about another independent film, an independent sci-fi film, District 9, which won the weekend box office. We'll also do a rundown of the top movie news, which includes Aaron Sorkin talking about Facebook and Tarantino helping bolster the Weinstein Company, or at least hopefully for 
Bob and Harvey Weinstein bolstering the Weinstein Company. Well, and Brian Singer directing Battlestar Galactica. That's right. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Jay Leno and so, some news there and Saving Grace being uh, canceled. We're going to try and get sneak in uh, some inside baseball news, both about the Los Angeles County Museum of Arts film program and a little-known film rental, I guess, kiosk known, known as Redbox. Little-known in L.A. Little, yeah, yeah, that's true. Little <laughs> known in the rest of the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. Um, but they certainly seem to be giving Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and Netflix a run for their money. And they are ticking off the studios, to say the least, and have gotten into some legal spats with them. We'll touch on that right before we close. Um, But as I mentioned, District 9 won the weekend. It made $37 million. It's the sci-fi film, the indie sci-fi film that Peter Jackson produced. And how do you pronounce the director's name? Neil Blomkamp? Neil Blomkamp. You got to say it with a uh, with a South African accent. With a du- yeah, that like pseudo Dutch. And he's like twenty two or something, isn't he? Twenty nine. Yeah. Oh, God, he looks younger than that. Not even seen my clothes. Oh, okay. That makes me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a he's a good looking young guy, no question about it. Yeah, he's and so is Peter cute. Jackson these days, who's skinny I and everything. Know. He lost a lot of weight. He's tiny. <laughs> yeah, he looks a little sickly. I'm sort of concerned for Peter Jackson. He looks okay. You get up close to him. But the funny thing is, is that like, you know, you're used to the image of Peter and then you see him this skinny and he's not only skinny, he's tiny. He's not a tall guy. So he's a very, uh, but a very powerful small man. And I was a little shocked that the lead, the lead actor in the film is uh, the director's best friend and he never acted in a movie before. Shalto yeah. Copley plays the lead character, this sort of weaselly government uh, employee. And uh, he really holds the film together. He's really good. Are you sure about Absolutely. that? Because in, in her review in the Los Angeles it's Times, Time, Betsy... Time Magazine. Oh, really? Well, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Times, Betsy Sharkey said he's a well-known actor in South Africa. No, I'm pretty, sure, Mike, I'm pretty no. sure Michael's right. He's not done, at least never done anything really major. I think it's in between. I think he's done a couple movies in South Africa, but um, he's not a star or anything. And he is the director's best friend, and that's how he ended up doing this. Uh, his credits on IMDb are just as an actor, District 9, that's it. Well, that's uh, IMDb. That's not, let's well, not get into whether IMDb is accurate about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't trust them for spellings and stuff, but as a beginning, a beginning uh, shot of what might possibly be true, it's pretty good. If he had other it roles, is. they might have misspelled the names, they might have the movie title wrong, but they usually have stuff up there. But it was from any other country, it's unlikely they'd have it up there. If it didn't get distribution in the United States, the odds of a non-famous person having the right credits are very thin. Unfortunately, well, he's Time cer- Magazine described him as a high school friend who had no other credits. Okay. Well, he's certainly going to be known now. The $30 million film it cost about $30 million to make. And in North America, this weekend alone, it made $37 million on just over 3,000 screens. Coming in second and dropping like a rock on <laughs> over 4,000 screens, it dropped nearly 60%. It made $22.5 million in North America. It was G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. So... Michael, you were right about that movie sinking from sight. <laughs> well, $100 million after two weeks isn't bad. It's a bad movie. They opened it in August. So, you know, if they end up with $150, I'm sure they'll, be, they'll feel like they, you know, dodged a bullet. Well, apparently it cost $175 million to make that film. That was just a lunch budget. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it would be profitable, but at least they squeezed out money out of a movie that's really, really bad. But, uh, David, did you see District 9? Did you like yeah. it? I thought it was terrific. I like District 9. I'm not sure I think it's perfect, but I mean, I, the funny thing about District 9 is they did a great job selling it, and I think they sold a movie that isn't the movie that you get to see. 
Um, and yet it's a good movie. I think ultimately they kind of sold it like it was Men in Black, you know, with some high, big effects and a little more dirt. Um, and it's really a much more kind of basic drama. I keep on saying it's the defiant ones with an alien instead of a black guy. Um, <laughs> it's basically a race story. And um, I think it's a compelling movie. I think it works for the most part. It's a little slow in the first act. But the effects are good and the characters are interesting and the idea is interesting and uh, it basically works. It's just interesting that it, they, they sold something else. Uh, another movie that opened this weekend, Spread, or is opening, I think, next, next weekend maybe. But, you know, the, the Ashton Kutcher movie, which is about a male prostitute who is betting Anne Heche for the first three quarters, two-thirds of the movie. Uh, all of a sudden, Anne Heche isn't in the movie, in the ads. <laughs> and it's just him and the girl he meets and who eventually they hook, he hooks up with. Um, so they've made it into a teen romp as opposed to a, a male prostitute movie. So, you know, marketing is a funny thing. Well, that movie did open this weekend, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, maybe it did to three dollars. Right? I think I think in limited release, it made yeah. 117 thousand dollars on 91 screens. It had it had something like a 300 dollar per screen average. <laughs> it was painful, but Anchor Bay doesn't release movies, so here they are trying to release a movie. It doesn't work. Another movie that opened this week was The Time Traveler's Wife. On just under 3,000 screens, it came in third and made 19.2 million dollars in North America. A movie New Line was going to dump. That's right. Uh, a year and a half ago. And uh, Warner Brothers has once again salvaged a New Line movie to great effect for them. Uh, the last one, the other one was uh, He's Not Just Not That Into You, which they really hated at New Line. And Warner Brothers made into a $100 million plus movie. Um, this is a pretty good number for this movie, I think. Yeah, Eric Bana is not a star. He's, uh, you know, he was good in Chopper, but I don't think he's registered in anything ever since, including this. But uh, no. he's the lead actor and it opened. It's dull, but, but they opened it up at least. I think that's a slight exaggeration of how Eric Bana isn't. I mean, he, he has been in some very big movies, and he does. But that, neither one of them is a big movie draw, though she may be because of uh, The Notebook. I mean, I think you may be getting some of that here. But this is almost the same number as Julia and Julia last week, so you can't really complain if you're Warner Brothers. Julia and Julia came in fourth place this week with $12.4 million in North America. It's made to date $43.6 million, which is a, a little over its $40 million budget. Um, so they say. Now, now, The Traveler's Wife stars Eric Bana and um, Rachel, McAdams. Rachel, McAdams. Rachel McAdams. But, you know, if Eric Bana is not a huge superstar, certainly the star of District 9, as we just mentioned, is not a superstar. And I think, you know, he, he will definitely be more well-known after District 9. I think that film will have legs. I don't think it's going to drop that far. And I honestly think uh, they left room for a sequel. Not to give anything away. Don't give anything away. I'm seeing it in a couple of hours. But District 10 should be out in three <laughs> years. The reality is, is that those movies do drop and has nothing, you know, dropping is, has changed a lot in the last few years. That second weekend drop for a movie like District 9, if it drops to 20 million next weekend, it's not a horror show. Much like G.I. Joe dropping to 59% is not a horror show. The geeks show up in that first weekend and that's what, you know, the people who want to see it, see it. The question with District 9 is, will they go back a second and third time? Um, that may happen. I think that District 9 played the marketing card absolutely right. I mean, we had we did a Comic Con um, episode a couple of weeks ago, and the film was mentioned there. I think they played their Comic Con cards absolutely perfectly. There was a ton of buzz about it beforehand, and it made me go out and see a film on opening night. I haven't done that in I don't even know how long. I was actually out on a Friday night at ten o'clock seeing this movie, and the place was packed. I would say the Comic Con had zero to do with it. In fact, really, <laughs> that that's their core base, and those are the people who are going to go see the movie no matter what. It's Peter Jackson's name, action, you know, aliens, and all that. 
I think that the, re the way they played their marketing right is they found people who were well beyond the Comic-Con audience. Um, I call them the Geek 8. I figure like there's about $8 million, maybe it's about $12 million now, of geek money in an opening weekend for these movies. After that, you have to find real people to go to the movie that aren't the geeks, that aren't the people who are reading online stuff, that aren't watching this show, that aren't reading me. Um, and they went out and found them. And $37 million is a big number for a movie with so little profile, no stars at all. And just a really cool idea. They did almost as much to open as, as Terminator 2, Terminator 4, whatever it is, Salvation. Well, yes, but I will say that after Comic-Con, the profile of that film rose substantially. Uh, you know, we all, it's a little bit of a circle jerk, those of us in the media who, love, you know, for us, it rose significantly. What really rose is they spent money on advertising. That's what opens a movie to $37 million. Nobody's opening a movie to $37 million on, mar on marketing, on publicity, at Comic-Con or anywhere else. You can't do it. Um, you have to go out and sell the movie in, outside. Same thing with G.I. Joe. All that negative buzz didn't affect that opening because people were, sell they were selling the movie, and it didn't really matter what the press had to say. It had to matter mattered whether they liked the commercial. I'm not sure what kind of legs District 9 will have because it's a, it's a grim, gritty little movie. It's basically a B-movie B sci-fi film with a really good concept that resonates but it's it's grim and it's dirty and it's uh, kind of depressing and the alien creatures are off-putting which is sort of the the purpose of the movie and uh i don't my mom's not going to go see it I, I don't see it a lot of crossover audience for it i think the fans might go back twice but i don't see it having huge legs you know this is kind of an 80 million dollar grocer 90 million dollar grocer you still make a sequel uh you know all that's true but um, it's not. It doesn't become a hundred and fifty million dollar movie, but it will be well loved and probably pretty do pretty well on DVD. Absolutely. And those those ads were everywhere, and they started like at the beginning of the summer with those strange mm -hmm. ads. Yeah, outdoor. Like you know, yeah, only humans can sit here. You know that it had my attention at the very beginning of the summer. The true blood of this summer. It was. Do, do you think it will do well at award season? No. Are you kidding? No. <laughs> Did you bring that up because you think it's funny? <laughs> what would it win for? Tech? What award would it be up for, you think? I'm sorry, were we still talking about District 9? Because I was actually talking about the buzz on the Battlestar Galactica movie. I don't know. <laughs> oh, what well, that's definitely going to go oh, best picture. Oh, we moved on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think District 9 and G.I. Joe will get about the same nominations. Pretty much. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it'll, be on, it'll be on some 10 best lists, absolutely. But that's, that's, that's it. But on a very select group of 10 best lists, I mean, there's enough art films for most of the critics to go after. District 9 will be a lovely memory at number 15. Julie and Julio get some nominations. That's, well, really? yes. For I who? Mean, Meryl Streep? Best actress. Meryl Streep yeah. will be nominated for sure. Screenplay is a good chance. I think Meryl Streep gets nominated if she considers playing a role. Well, she has, she'll be up against herself again. She has another movie coming out in December where she gets to have sex with uh, Bill, with, uh, who is it? Uh, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin and somebody else. Yeah, it's complicated. It's old people <laughs> sex. Old the movie. Ew. And title. <laughs> it's actually it's complicated. That's what she brought. She said it. It's called. It's yeah. so complicated, or it's complicated. <laughs> oh, brother. So now, what what do you guys make of this whole Battlestar Galactica movie? Apparently, Brian Singer has signed on to direct it, which is no surprise since he wanted to direct a Battlestar Galactica movie movie even before he went off and directed the X Men movie. Yeah, he's been wanting to do this for a while. I'm I'm in favor of it. I say yay. I'm a huge Battlestar fan. If Brian Singer wants to do it. Yay, let's just hope he doesn't screw it up like he screwed up Superman. The problem is that I, what I just said about District 9, which is that, you know, if you 
if it's about the base of people who love Battlestar Galactica, a cable show, but successfully, um, you're talking about a movie that can't make money. <laughs> so they have to figure out a way to both, you know, tip the hat to the people who are the fans, much like Star Trek did this summer, and get to a movie that is going to be accessible to an audience that doesn't want to see a series of movies, that wants to see that movie right then for those reasons. And, um, you know, hopefully Brian Singer can figure that out. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I loved the show. I thought it was a really good show. Uh, one week season, three great seasons. I thought they wrapped it up nicely. Either oh, you did? To... Oh, I hated the ending. I thought the ending was terrible. <laughs> well, I think they're either going to have to retread something that they've already done in this series. They can't do after the end of the series. So what movie are they going to make? It just, it's too soon after the series. No, just that they, Serenity was a you know, movie that played really well at Comic-Con and then didn't do any business. The core group, you have to get past that core group. And I don't, I'm not a Battlestar obsessive. I actually have them on Blu-ray and have to watch them, kind of. You know, they have to find a story that's not about the TV show and use those characters effectively and not just kowtow to uh, fans. So do you think fans of Lego will go and see the Lego movie Warner Brothers wants to make? <laughs> I mean, that, that to me is just as silly of a concept. <laughs> well, it sounds like they're doing Home Alone in Legoland. You know, <laughs> and if that's what it is, they can get that kind of, you know, it's a it's funny thing is the same kind of thing is going on with uh, Avatar. You know, either that footage for Avatar is going to be, uh, you couldn't really tell from that footage whether or not you're going to have an emotional reaction, relationship with those characters. If you do, it could be a huge movie. If you don't, it's going to be a bomb. And the same thing is true with Lego. I mean, it's a crazy idea, but same thing was true with, with Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, based on a ride, they made something much bigger than that. I would agree with you. I saw the footage as well, as we've mentioned on, on this show before, and I felt the same way. It looked fantastic. It looked groundbreaking, but it was too little to tell whether you would actually be interested in the characters for a three-hour ride. You have to forget that they're, anime, they're, they're avatars for the movie to work. You have to be involved in that love story between the guy who's the avatar and the actual real-life planetoid person. <laughs> and if you do, that's great, but... The, Watching those clips, all you really get is, wow, look at the cool effects. And if the movie's about the effects, it will not be that successful. And the same thing's true with Legos or G.I. Joes or any of this stuff. So we shouldn't be making movies out of toys or old or recently uh, completed television shows. What about social networking sites like Twitter and Facebook? Aaron Sorkin is writing a script called The Facebook Movie, and he was videotaped talking about it on makingof.com, which is a, a new site that Natalie Portman actually has some involvement with. David, during prep, you were saying that the script is already done and or at least close to being done. There was a draft that was delivered to Sony that Sony loved to death. And um, so that's why Aaron Sorkin is the flavor of the moment at Sony. Um, but, you know, it's not... People keep on calling it the Facebook movie. It's not about Facebook. There's no actual association with Facebook. It seems to me like it's going to be a lot like he's not that into you, but, you know, another... Friends networking kind of movie using this technology as the you know as a, a toy in it, but really about people hooking up. Well, we have Aaron talking about the film here. Um, let's uh, play a quick clip. I won't play it all the way through, but your task or your your uh, homework during during the next <laughs> minute is to count how many ahs and ums Aaron Sorkin says. <laughs> what happened was there's a um, uh, a fellow named Ben Mesrick, um, who sent out a book proposal um, uh, about the, uh, uh, the, the events surrounding the founding of Facebook, which happened 
in the dorm room of a Harvard sophomore in uh, 2003 and 2004. And uh, it was just a 14-page book proposal, um, which his publisher had sent to the uh, movie studios because they wanted to set up a film deal uh, right away. Um, uh, the producer, Scott Rudin, um, uh, who, uh, who I love, uh, both as a movie producer and a Broadway producer, um, bought it, came to me uh, uh, first. It was a 14-page book proposal. I was about on page three when I said yes. And um, I, I, if you asked me why did I say yes, I'm not sure that I can give you a clear answer, but it's the fastest I've ever said yes uh, uh, to anything. I have 24. I counted 26. <laughs> I, I counted 20. <laughs> Michael, you were being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Aaron Sorkin's a busy guy because he also is rewriting Moneyball for Sony. And, of course, Moneyball was the film that um, was shut down by Sony that Steven Soderbergh was supposed to make. Well, when you call something the Facebook okay. movie, it sounds stupid and dumb. But, you know, if you call a, you know, the Lego movie is just Toy Story, you know, it's a, it's a movie built around old toys that people know. And uh, it sounds dumb, but if it's executed well, it's fine. It's, I actually it, you know, don't think that the Facebook movie sounds dumb. I think it sounds actually really very interesting. Even if it wasn't, you know, about social networking, even if it was just about Facebook, I find that story really interesting. I would totally see that movie. Well, that's what you think now. Wait till you see it. <laughs> but if Aaron Sorkin is writing it, how bad can it be? Well, they can walk down the hallway a lot. All I know is a lot of hallways and colleges. <laughs> That's right. And they're <laughs> going to be talking a mile a minute. In, uh, but they'll all have the same exact voice. They'll all be using those $20 words appropriately. Yeah, they'll all be, yeah the same sense of humor and the same pop culture references. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just so good to know that the former cast of all TV shows will be available to work for Aaron Sorkin's movie. <laughs> Well, now, uh, David, during prep, we kind of went over the story, and I brought up that whole Moneyball issue, and you said that Steven Soderbergh got screwed on that. What, uh, what do you know that we That know? would be one of the words I would use. That would be the nicest word I would use. We'll tell. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated – it's a story that, you know, has been gone over, and Sony has gone out of their way to turn it into one story when it probably is a different story, and I found the whole thing frustrating and had a lot of fights about it. But uh, the punchline is, is that uh, for whatever reasons – uh, the head of the studio was surprised by a rewrite that had been going on for months and by the tone of what they were doing, which had been shooting for months and uh, had a couple films that bombed and then all of a sudden decided not to make the movie that she was committed to making. So um, I would say Soderbergh not only got screwed by not being able to make the movie, which he was very serious about making sure was commercial because he felt that it was the kind of movie that he could actually have a commercial success that would help his Artist, artistic projects do better and have, have more life. But, you know, he also was kind of beaten up in the press uh, at the behest of people who wanted to cover their own tuchuses. So I found the whole thing was quite amazing. To me, it was amazing for a director who is so well-respected and deserves that respect to be so poorly treated by a studio. Well put. Yeah, I was going to say, there's not, <laughs> there's not much more to say there. Yeah, I mean, certainly there was some question, Karen, that you had when this news came out was, why did Amy Pascal, all of a sudden, two days before the film was going to be put into production... It was actually shooting the inserts, these uh, interviews that they were talking about, were so bad, uh, were had been shooting for two months before the start date, at the movie, at the cost of the studio. My, my critique at the time was, what in the hell was Amy Pascal doing? I mean... I 
why was she not reading the script? Why was she not staying on top of this? This this is her job, or she should have a minion whose job this is. What? It seems to me like somebody really dropped the ball there. Well, I think she was on the job. She knew what movie he was making, and then when they decided to kill it, they made up this excuse that suddenly he'd veered off into unexpected territory when that was malarkey, and they knew what he was doing all along. They just used that as an excuse and blamed Soderbergh rather than their getting cold feet. Yeah, mostly because they want to maintain the relationship with Brad Pitt, who is very uh, hard to get a handle on these days. Ooh, yeah. What does that mean? It means that he is—he's become the Dustin Hoffman of his generation, in that he <laughs> is—you uh, know—you attach him to your movie at your peril because there's a very good chance he's leaving, <laughs> and he's become known for this now. That he—he'll um, commit to things for a while and then just get a, go, leave fairly soon before production starts. Happened on State of Play. It's happened on a number of pictures, so he's got, he gets cold feet a lot. I always thought of that as Warren Beatty. It was <laughs> Warren for a while. It was Dustin for a while. It's oh, catching. Mr. Maybe. Yeah. Well, now, who do you think is going to be the fall guy for Inglorious Bastards, or, or were you one of the film's uh, big fans? I don't think it's a matter of being a fan of the picture. I think it's a matter of the economics of the movie, and they should be okay, just barely. And we should say that Inglorious Bastards, for those of you who haven't been listening to each episode, live under a rock. <laughs> yes, is Quentin Tarantino's campy World War II movie. And the LA Times ran a story yesterday and had another post on their blog. On the, I guess it's, I don't know what blog they had it on, a Company Town blog? I don't know. But they talked about how the Weinstein Company, which of course Bob and Harvey Weinstein run, uh, is kind of putting a lot on the line to release Tarantino's film. Well, that story was a response to the New York Times story. That was there is a very, very long New York Times story today, and the LA Times is trying to keep up with that story. But the point of the New York Times story was that it's not all in Glorious Bastards. The next four or five movies are really what they're concerned about at this point, and that's what the Weinstein Company wants people to feel. Whether it's true or not, nobody knows. Well, they keep postponing all of their releases. They've done that every year they've been in business. There hasn't been a single year they haven't released, they haven't moved half of their slate around. Was Miramax like that? I don't remember Miramax being oh, yeah. like that. Oh, yeah. Were they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not as bad as this, but Miramax was, did that a lot. I mean, The Road is a movie that was supposed to open last year, is opening this year. You know, it's not, all of these things are being pushed around. Well, the Weinstein Company was founded in 2005 after Bob and Harvey Weinstein sold Miramax to Disney after a little uh, kerfuffle there. And they raised $1.2 billion in equity and debt from investors, including Goldman Sachs and Mark Cuban. And they immediately went out to try and create this empire. And I think uh, since they hired Miller Buckfire, a financial consulting firm, they've been told, according to the Los Angeles Times, and since I haven't read the New York Times article, I can't speak to that, but they've been told by Miller Buckfire to uh, stick to the knitting effectively. In other words, stop running off trying to create magazines and websites and, and television shows and start producing some really good Broadway shows and some really good movies, which is what they've been known for. Well, this is the story from the beginning of them leaving Disney. Um, the Disney empire had grown to this massive size. And, you know, they had started there at about $150 million a year and ended up with a budget of about $700 million a year in the process of a decade. So Disney basically wanted them to cut it back to about $400 million, and they refused. And they were going to go out and change the world. And, they, and when they went out, nobody wanted to invest in them at first because they wanted to do all these things at once. Uh, and that ended up being a big problem for them on Wall Street. And finally, they kind of committed to doing less. And that's when they got their money. But they still were doing other things. 
Pardon me, that was the gist of the New York Times article, as you know. Um, Harvey Weinstein admitted that he got distracted by investing in fashion houses, investing in social networking sites, investing in all these things unrelated to movies, and he wasn't paying full attention. And Bob said the one thing that they regretted was uh, moving too quickly to try and rebuild that empire that they had at Disney and not just sticking to making movies. And that's their sort of mea culpa throughout the article, that, yeah, we did all this other stuff and it was stupid, and now we're focused on making movies again. But I think that is the mea culpa. I think it's a, a, a publicity mea culpa. They really needed to say it so that everybody would kind of get off their back. And I think that's what the New York Times piece is about, written by somebody yeah. who's never written about them before, who doesn't write about the film <laughs> industry. Um, I think they were just basically saying, back off, give us the next five months to get ourselves together, and we're going to live or die in the next five months. Well, the Los Angeles Times says here... Are they still in business? But yes, they are. And as a matter of fact, they just relaunched their website with a redesign. And it looks great. It looks pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, they say here, uh, when it comes to handicapping the fate of the Weinsteins, the industry is divided into two camps. Those who seem to want the Mercurial Brothers to fall on their faces, and those who see them as a gutsy as gutsy impresarios willing to make the kinds of arty and risky movie bets that big studios won't touch. Well, that's like 95 to 5. 95% of people were rooting against them, and 5% of people were rooting for them. Yeah, but I'm sorry. The, ind- the mu- movie industry is nowhere near as exciting if it doesn't have Harvey in it. Well, Harvey's not going anywhere, really. I mean, the truth is Harvey still has a couple hundred million dollars in his home account, you know, with his bank account, with checking account. So he's fine. You know, there, there are a lot of things they could do if the Weinstein Company fell apart, uh, and it would probably be more like the, the Miramax we remember from the good old days. Um, yeah. You know, the thing is, nine is not going to pull them out of the hole because it's too expensive to start with. And Glorious Bastards is not going to pull them out of the hole because it's too expensive to start with. Unless they become uber successes beyond anybody's expectation, not just whether they're good or bad, but like become $200 million, $300 million worldwide movies, it's not a lot of money in their pocket. And the journalist who wrote the Weinstein story for the New York Times is David Siegel. Who's a business side writer, but no experience in film. So now what do you think, uh, certainly you're saying 95.5 that most of uh, Hollywood wants to see the Weinsteins fall on their face. What do you think Hollywood wants to see Jay Leno do? Do you think they want to see him fall on his face? Because he announced his first guest for his 10 o'clock talk show, which of course, just to recap for those of you just joining us from another planet, Jay Leno, the talk show host from The Tonight Show, will be doing a variety talk show at 10 p.m. every night on NBC, and his first guest every in weeknight. September, yes, every weeknight, that is, uh, will be Jerry Seinfeld, his old friend. This is a game changer in a big way, freaks a lot of people out. Uh, it's kind of like the 1230 slot being opened up on uh, by Letterman 25 years ago. And the thing is, his ratings can be half or a third of what the regular stuff is at 10 o'clock in primetime, and he can still make more money than any network show. So it's a very, there is a risk. It could be a disaster on some level, but the likelihood is they'll do decent ratings that are number three every single night for that slot um, and still make a ton of money. Well, I find it interesting that ABC and CBS won't let their stars go on it. That kind of cuts in a little bit, not a lot, but into his, his potential guest pool. Now this appeared in Entertainment Weekly, but is it true? Well, things change quickly. If there's success and there's some value to them to having it happen, you know, that may change. The biggest question is, uh, you know, the show, is what interestingly, somebody pointed out 
that the way this, the reason why like uh, Craig uh, Ferguson does 40 minutes of comedy before he gets to a guest is because they've done studies and they find that the guests are not why people watch talk shows anymore. They watch it for that opening half hour of comedy. And that's why oh, really? all the Leno advertising has been about the comedy and not about guests because they're going, you know, they want to see jaywalking. They want to see, um, you know, hometown news and all that stuff. And I, my guess is that's what Leno's going to rely heavily on. Well, it's funny because when I went to see District 9 on Friday night, I got there a little early because I thought it might be crowded and the place was packed. I sat down and started watching all those ads they play before, uh, before a film shows. And one of the ads was a promotion for the new Leno show. The audience, which had been talking and there was kind of a, a constant din of conversation that was relatively loud, when this promo started, and it was a good two-minute promo that was a little bit of a skit with Jay Leno in it and Fred Armistad, and they did this little kind of hokey, you know, humorous... Uh, road trip. Yeah, it was a road trip, and it was kind of funny, but the entire audience was quiet, watched it, Ooh. and then afterwards... When uh, and, and laughed at the end of it, so they laughed at the punchline. And after that, when they went to another commercial, everybody began talking again. And I didn't know whether it was a Pavlovian response to there's Jay Leno, we have to shut up and watch, um, or they were genuinely interested in the skit that was being presented to them. Leno was, you know, wanted to be Carson. They all wanted to be Carson when Carson was leaving. And he turned out to be Art Linkletter, who I don't even know if anybody else in the phone call enough to remember. <laughs> But Art Linkletter was a guy who did, you know, kids say the craziest things and it was very kind of folksy and homey and people just liked watching him. Leno found that as a comedian on that show, it was completely middle American humor. It wasn't edgy like Leno used to be as a stand-up comic. People felt he sold out. He wasn't the Leno who used to be. They wanted, you know, Letterman edge. But he doubled Letterman's ratings the entire time they were on the air. And the reason was is because people like the guy. They like his, this, this kind of broad humor he does. And that's what you're going to get at the 10 o'clock show. If you see with the Conan ratings, you know, Conan went into that slot. And besides not being quite famous enough to matter, um, his rate, it's not Letterman's ratings have gone up slightly, but Conan's ratings have dropped in half uh, because he's not, he's neither Carson nor Leno. He's this kind of kid person who some people like a lot, but it's a very, a much narrower group of people than like the jokes that Leno told. Well, before I interrupted you uh, with this whole Leno bit you were going to tell us whether you liked inglorious bastards tarantino's film or not yes i liked inglorious bastards um i don't love inglorious bastards my take on inglorious bastards is basically that it's two and a half hours of well it's two hours and 10 minutes of talking and 20 minutes of action so if you don't like to hear tarantino dialogue done slowly and painfully sometimes and you're just waiting for the punchline for 20 minutes in each of the sequence. There are five sequences, and you're basically a lot of talking and then some action at the end of each one of them. Um, you're not going to like the movie. If you like you know, him, his people sitting around talking, if you like the extended version of Grindhouse, uh, you're going to love this movie. <laughs> so, you know, not a Brad Pitt movie. Another movie where they're selling the Brad Pitt movie. It's not really a Brad Pitt movie. Brad Pitt's terrific, I think. The Nazi in it's terrific. I like, I like all the performances, really. But it's not the action movie, the World War II, go kill some Nazis movie they're making it out to be. It's really, let's chat about killing Nazis. Right. I actually called it, after seeing it in Cannes, it should be called Inglorious Supporting Characters, not Inglorious Bastards. <laughs> because it, it's really about the supporting characters. It has little to do well, with there, the bastards. Truly, there is no lead. I mean, it's like the bastards are not the movie. The, you know, even the Hans Landau, who's really, you know, theoretically the person who has the most screen time, 
is not really a lead in this movie. It's really an ensemble picture, um, and it's a lot of talking. I, I, I have no desire to see this movie. Absolutely none. Well, they haven't sold it to you. You know, they have to exactly. tell you there's a reason why you want to see it as a woman, and they haven't done that, unless you yeah. just want to see Brad Pitt. Not in a movie like this. Well, think about it, uh, and this is how, how is this for a segue? They sold Saving Grace, the TNT <laughs> show with Holly Hunter, to women, and it has been pulled by Fox Television Studios, not the network. TNT would continue airing it because they have a couple of years left on their contract. But Fox Television Studios just felt that they were really only selling it to women, and it just didn't, the, the, it was too risky, and they weren't going to make their money back. Another victim of the DVD drop-off. There's a lot of that going around around it now. If your movie, it, you know, the, the marginal things that were uh, ethnic group or, you know, narrow cast projects are suffering badly. Uh, movies made for black people also are not getting made because the DVD sales have dropped off so badly. Um, and the same thing I think is true here. Well, yeah. the, the LA Times says, although Saving Grace was a solid, if not spectacular, i.e. TNT's The Closer, performer, Fox Television Studios saw more, more risk than reward in going ahead with a full third season and, and a fourth season, which TNT wanted. The worry was that the show would not bring in enough money in reruns or in DVD sales to justify the production costs of the program. So that speaks exactly to what you're saying, David. Yeah, deficit finance. All shows are deficit financed. Uh, and it's all based on what they can sell overseas in the DVDs. And TNT is getting them actually for a bargain. Every network gets it basically for a bargain. It's less than the cost to make the show. Um, and, you know, they're deficit financing and going, well, the last season probably was not profitable for them with DVD dropping off. They probably did not sell enough DVD packages of the last season to justify another season. They're also saying it d doesn't do well overseas. Well, well for, and put, put, put all that aside, it's not doing well enough in America. In its first season, it opened to uh, like 6.4 million viewers total in uh, 2007. And then last year, it dropped down to 5.2 million. And this year, it's dropped down to 3.5 million. So it fell almost in half in viewers. So this is a show that's dramatically losing its audience. And when that happens, it's not good for anybody. You know, forget overseas DVD. If, you're, if your audience plummets by half in two seasons, something's wrong. But that is, it's interesting that D TNT still wanted the show because that number is still not necessarily so bad for TNT. But it's, they don't have as much risk. They have no risk in it. Well, I just don't know who their audience is, really. I mean, women, yeah, okay. But I think most women would prefer to see The Closer, which has a little bit more of a likable character. Um, Holly which, Hunter's which character has, in Saving Grace is not that likable. Yeah, and The Closer I, has maintained its audience. It's a hit. Yeah. But you can have non-hit shows, and, and the thing is, like two years ago, three years ago, as DVD was so high, you could have shows that were not very successful and were making their money back in DVD and making a big profit in DVD. Um, that's what's changed so much, is that a, mo a show like this, you know, they would used to be that they would fight to get this show to the fifth season, uh, because that's when you started getting the payoff. And then a few years ago, when they started t selling TV series uh, on DVD, that changed completely. All you needed was one season, you sold that season. You know, a lot of shows lasted one season and done okay on DVD. A show like uh, Arrested Development has a post-television post life um, that's more profitable than their TV life ever came close to. But apparently in this case, that, that's not the case. Well, David, the LA Times uh, agrees with you. They say here, if studios want cable networks to keep buying smart dramas, both are going to have to find a way to make the numbers work or else viewers will walk. 
So those numbers, I think what what they're referring to there is exactly what you just mentioned, that a television show is deficit finance. They break even if they're lucky on the first run, and then they use Never, it. ever break even on the first run. Yeah, I mean... They, it doesn't, they, ever. Most of it... No, they, they yeah. make their money on reruns. Right. That was in the Not even on reruns. They but make I, their money now on, you know, they, they make their money, they, they make their money in syndication, is what they used to be. They would deficit finance, no TV, no TV show, unless it's like the eighth year of ER or something like that gets paid what it costs to produce the show. So it was always reliant on on syndication in the past. Reruns and networks don't pay that much. Um, and then now DVD. Both of those things have gone away completely. Well, ironically, the networks created that problem for themselves by killing off the reruns. So they kind of, you know, cut their own throats in this weird way. They, they Because they were making so much money on DVD, DVD uh, it was better to do that than to have reruns. So they stopped doing reruns, started doing all this reality programming in the summer, and killed the rerun. I was wondering if it was the networks that killed off reruns. I don't think they want to program 365 days a year, but they've been forced into it because people stopped watching reruns because suddenly you had cable channels with new episodes and you had DVDs and all these other areas, and people got tired of watching reruns. They didn't have to. They could watch it on DVD. They could watch it uh, on demand. They could watch it in a million other ways, and rerun ratings for all network shows have dropped dramatically. First it was dramas, now it's sitcoms, and Reruns just don't work anymore, and the networks have been forced to program in the well, summer. The thing that I disagree, the only way I disagree with you on that is that I think that there's a uh, self fulfilling prophecy element to it, and that the studios, the networks, uh, the movie studios are all much more responsible for creating these changes. Uh, and then they say, well, you know, it's the nature of the beast. The truth is, they set it up, and they were trying to profit by it, and that for them, it was a way of profiting more, more quickly. And the same thing happened with DVD sell-through, is that the whole idea of it was that they would, you know, the reason the, the window for DVD got so short was so they could make that much more money in the next quarter as opposed to waiting eight months. Um, and so greed is usually what the answer is, and it leads to these things becoming standard, and for a while it's great until the DVD starts falling apart, and then you go, what happened to my reruns? What happened to my rerun money? <laughs> I don't oh. think DVDs are bad, though. I think it's a great revenue stream, and I think they should release them, you know, 12, 14 weeks after a movie comes out because they piggyback on the movie's release. That's when people want to see it. I don't want to wait a year to buy a movie that came out in the summer. I want to buy it in the fall. I think it's natural and it makes sense. Well, it, it does on some level, but it's now costing them huge amounts of money. And they, it was great when everybody was buying DVDs. Now when people just want to rent DVDs, don't want to spend the money to buy, uh, it's become a bad idea because the truth is people will wait. You know, the idea of piggybacking, uh, you still have to go out of marketing budgets for DVDs are now almost as big as the movies um, because you have to remind people even four months later of the movie again. Um, so the whole idea of piggybacking doesn't really work. And people, people over 30 will wait to buy something. They're, they're, you know, it's the same phenomenon of opening weekend is that opening weekend, huge opening weekend numbers have to do with usually with movies that younger people want to see. Because those are the people that have to see it that first weekend. Adults will wait four weeks. Not so much anymore because now the movie's not even in the theater four weeks from now. So, as I say, things, these things change, and I think a lot of it is the, the behavior of the studios and the, and the networks and how they manage them. But don't you think DVD sales are just going back to a more normal level? I mean, people never collected movies 30 years ago. They didn't, they didn't no, have the ability or VHS tapes nowhere near what they do today. And suddenly... Right. They had a chance to buy Seinfeld, MASH, and all these TV shows and movies and put them on their library shelf, and they went crazy for a few years, and now it's settling back down to a normal level. They don't have all these great, huge properties to put out, and people are just right. sort of 
more naturally adding to the library that they build up in that first 10 years in a frenzy. And well, now the it's idea just more down mature. to a more normal level. There's no question the idea matured. The problem is the industry being the pores that they are spent all the money that they were making through all this incredible bubble that was created. Essentially, it's exactly like the housing bubble, exactly like the internet bubble. Um, there was a DVD bubble, and the problem is with the film business is that the agents figured out how much money the studios were making on DVD and started taking it for their clients and started spreading it out through the movie production. And the cost of making movies and marketing movies became so enormous mm-hmm. that they were spending the money. Now they're going, okay, now it's cost $80 million to make a comedy plus another $100 million in marketing. And those comedies have never made more than $120 million at the box office worldwide. So are we, you know, it's suicidal on some level. Plus now the DVD sales, which used to be, you know, $150 million in revenue are down to $40, $50 million in revenue. And now they're losing money on the same movie they made money on two years ago. Uh, And now that's why they have to fix it. That's why they have to cut costs back. They have to cut percentages back. They're fighting with the unions. Um, That's the problem. Yes, you're right. There's nothing odd about DVD sales coming down to this level because this is the maturing of that business. But the problem is the industry shifted completely and basically added another $40 million, 40% in overhead to eat the DVD money they were making. Well, a couple of points here. One, Michael, if, if uh, I can tell you that if that window shrank anymore, you would really have the movie theater exhibitors I, up in arms. I didn't ask. I don't want it to shrink anymore. Ah, okay. So you like the- Oh, board. they should expand it. So I mean, what, it's not a matter of shrink. They, they've shrunk it too much already. It, right it's now, already the average is about four months, ten days. Yeah, and what they need to do is go back to six months, eight months uh, to get people to, to, to extend theatrical another two weeks. Because the truth is they're all dropping. You know, movies are now losing $10, 15000000 million in theatrical box office regularly. That is money that they now need. It used to be okay that they threw away that $15, 20000000 bucks because they'd make it up on DVD. Now they're not making it up on DVD, and they need the money. Well, who's so going to problem. be the brave soul to actually say that first or to actually do that first? Well, the studios have done things that, you know, the media doesn't notice when the studios do things. The studios, this is a much cheaper summer this year than it was last summer. There were a few big movies that people talked about, but basically if you look at the overall cost of what was spent this year versus last summer versus summer before, studios have already made the cutbacks. It's just not public conversation. And what studios are spending on the next set of movies is not public conversation yet, but it's, they've cut back a lot. Well, what is public conversation, and to your point, David, uh, regarding DVDs, is how studios are trying to hold on to their DVD revenues, going so far as to prevent a little-known video rental company uh, called Redbox. And I know it's little-known here in Los Angeles, and certainly in the rest of America, it's, uh, I guess... Uh, common as dirt. Common as dirt. <laughs> Uh, you see them everywhere. Red, yeah. Redbox. Well, they're in McDonald's. They're in 7-Elevens. They're in Walmarts. Right. Redbox, just to let listeners know, is a kiosk, which is in McDonald's, Walmart, Kroger's, supermarkets. <laughs> uh, they generated 300... Albertsons. Albertsons. <laughs> yeah. They basically rent DVDs for $1 per, per night. They are... They made $389 million in revenue last year. And they hope to have 22,000 kiosks in by the end of the year in 48 of the states of 48 states in North America. They are owned by Coinstar, and the beef that the studios have is that they're only renting these things, their DVDs, for one dollar. 
and then one dollar a day. A dollar a day. Yeah. So if you if you uh, keep the DVD for twenty five nights, they will charge you twenty five dollars, and you get to keep the DVD. And they say about ten percent of their customers do that. And you can go online and and order DVDs to be delivered to a specific kiosk, and then go pick it up at the kiosk if you want to. Yeah, it's all over yep. the place. When my brother uh, sails his boat on Chesapeake Bay, there's a, a red box right, you know, down from the uh, yacht harbor where they have their sailboat. And you, they stop by on their way to the boat, pick up a new release or two, take it on the boat for the weekend and bring it back. I don't understand what the studio's problem is. I'm sure that on the average, people keep the discs for two or three nights. So they're really paying two, three or four dollars per disc that they rent, not a dollar. I'm sure only a small percentage of them rushes it right back the next day. So... I don't understand what their problem is. It's another good revenue stream. I would mind it if I was Blockbuster because they're cutting into the top 20, 30 movies where you make a lot of your money. But uh, for Netflix, it doesn't seem as much a competitor. It's only for the newest, biggest releases. Here's the problem. And this is something, as soon as I saw something about Redbox maybe six months ago, I wrote vociferously about it at the time. The problem right now with the film business is price point. Everything is about price point. And all that talk about day and date, the problem with it was that the studios thought they could get people to pay what they call fight prices for a day and date movie. So Harry Potter opens, you can get it in your house the same day and you have to pay $40 to see Harry Potter. They quickly realized that nobody's going to pay $40, even in their house, even with 20 kids around, to see Harry Potter on their television set, even no matter how big their television set was. So as you start bringing that number down to what people would pay, the truth is, pay-per-view has never really been a big success, and the dollar, so the price point is lower than the cost of people going to the movies. So right now, the best, the, the way you make the most money per person on a movie is to have people go to a movie theater. They're they're willing to pay ten dollars, anywhere between eight and twelve dollars, thirteen dollars in some cities to see a movie per person. That's a huge price point because you can buy a DVD for fifteen bucks. Now we're at the point where you aren't buying DVDs, you're renting, you're renting a $20 a month thing at Netflix or at Blockbuster and renting at will. So the whole system of what was great about DVD for the studios was selling DVDs for originally $20, now mostly $15. That was the huge cash flow. Now that's going away again. We're just talking about it. Now it's going away. So now they have to figure out how to make the price point work for them as a rental business or is the delivery, home delivery, VOD, over the web, whatever it is. And as soon as you start telling people you can rent a movie for a dollar, why are they ever going to spend anything other than that dollar? Even if it does, even if they end up spending $3, it doesn't, you know, $20 a month starts sounding like a lot of money. $15, $13 to go to the movie or $10 to go to the movie theater sounds like a lot of money. You're basically balderizing the idea of anybody spending more than a buck or two to see a movie ever in any format. Right. There was an article in the Los Angeles Times this past Saturday, I believe, about Abercrombie and Fitch. And even though they are facing some hard times and their sales have plummeted, they will not discount any of their clothes. And they said the reason they don't do that is because once you discount, what you do is train the consumer to wait for the discount. Right. And again, the studios did this to themselves. You know, you can go to a Target or Walmart and see three movies from two years ago for eight bucks on a DVD. Because they were so busy exploiting the DVD business that they never thought about how they were devaluing their libraries. And that's where we are now is, you know, there's no way to get the price point up. That's why Blu-ray is such a priority all of a sudden because they're trying to find any way to raise that price point. Yeah, but what consumers have said is, you know what? 
The, the jump to Blu-ray just isn't big enough. From VHS to DVD, we saw the difference in quality. But from DVD to Blu-ray, eh, it's not well, that big problem, of a difference. The problem with Blu-ray, in my opinion, is the price of the machine, not the price of the discs. I think if people had Blu-ray machines, and they came out with a $150 Blu-ray machine, people would watch Blu-ray, and there is a significant difference. But Sony has, you know, is still not selling a $150 Blu-ray machine. You can get a knockoff machine now for $180. But until that mainstream $150, $100 machine, why is anybody spending that much money for some obscure delivery system? My point is just that, you know, like you say, as soon as you start discounting, you are undercutting your business. And the problem is they need to maximize how much per person they're going to get per movie. But the industry did that to themselves because all the studios backed Blu-ray rather than HD DVD. Well, that was also high priced. It wasn't any different. Well, there were cheaper, some cheaper HD players, and it was more of a main, it, it, like Betamax versus uh, VHS. You know, Sony is holding the tech, holding the cost of the uh, Blu-ray machines to be higher. But Blu-ray is a peripheral issue, as far as I'm concerned. It really is. You know, how do you get a DVD these days? And I don't care whether it's delivered over your streaming over VOD or whether it's a pay-per-view or Blockbuster or Redbox. They have to keep the idea that there's value to this stuff up. And the problem with all this long tail talk about internet delivery and all that is that the price keeps on coming down and down and down and down. And the same 10 million people want to see a movie. Well, it's that whole argument of, you know, analog dollars into digital cents that Jeff Zucker of of NBC Universal made. Yeah, and it's true. And if you want to, if, if, if 10 million people want to see Inglorious Bastards, and they're willing to spend $10 a person, then you have a $100 million movie. If ten, pe- ten same 10 million people want to see it and it costs $3 on average to see it, you've got a lot less money in the bank. And you're not paying for your, and you can't pay for the movie to be made. So it's a serious problem. Well, and Michael, you said that you don't see it as a competitor to Netflix. Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, and I believe their CEO or chairman, uh, he says the, that Redbox is one of his most challenging rivals. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I, I'm saying that the, the customer that he appeals to is quite different from the Redbox people. My brother's never going to rent from Netflix. He's never going to spend $20 a month having you know, a, 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 a membership of Netflix, but he will pick up the newest top release for, you know, for two or three nights. It's just not the type of person that's ever going to go to Netflix. Then the draw of Netflix is not the hottest new release because you have to wait days or weeks sometimes to get the really big new movies. You can't, what their draw is is the long tail. It is being able to get you know, thousands of different movies that you can choose from, obscure movies, foreign movies. That's, that's their bread and butter. People who want to see all types of movies. But even mainstreaming it, I mean, the idea of ultimately people look at their budgets and they go, I'm now spending $50 a month on my kids watching movies, DVDs. I don't want to spend $50 a month. How do I cut that cost? And so Redbox says to you, even if you're you know, going to hold on to it for three days, it's not like the old day was with uh, Blockbuster where you had a $4 charge for holding an extra day. Um, you know, It's a buck a day. I'm going to go do that instead of paying $20 a month ahead of time or 25 to have multiple copies or whatever. Um, and that's the thing is people, people spend so much money on, on stuff already. People are already paying for the cable television and the satellite in their house $100 a month. And that number keeps on going up. Um, people are already paying for Netflix at $20 a month. Every, anything that keeps it lower or feels like it's lower is an, it, got a big advantage. Well, I know that, Michael, you just uh, mentioned that Redbox has all the newest releases, and that's what IFC fears is that Redbox is catering to the majority or the, 
the middle of the road, the lowest common denominator, if you will. And they have all these recent releases, but they don't have any independent films. They don't have any obscure titles. And they have a whole article on their website. They only have room for like 40 titles. Of course, they don't have have one at the McDonald's on uh, 4th and Bleecker. (laughs) And they'll have AFC titles. Right. Their article (laughs) was titled, Beware the Red Box. And the other thing is, like, Walmart really wants to get out of the DVD sell-through, sell-through business, and the studios know this. And so the idea that they're going to have red boxes in all their Walmarts, and that's going to service the need for sell-through DVD, and it's going to challenge sell-through DVD at Walmart, and they're going to put less and less space in the Walmarts to sell DVDs. Again, that's a cut to the cost to the, to the bottom line of every studio. Well, I would say that you could go and see your obscure movies over at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, but unfortunately (laughs) they have canceled, or will be canceling, shutting down, their film series, which runs, I think, on Saturday evenings and on Tuesday afternoons. And I remember being uh, unemployed in 1998 and going to see several movies over there. And you'd think, this isn't such a big news story, it's... It's only in Los Angeles, but for some reason, this is a a topic that has really taken on a life of its own thanks to the internet. Probably because so many people are unemployed right now, they have enough time to notice it, (laughs) A, and B, be upset because they can't go to free Saturday movies anymore. Well, they're not free, I don't believe. I think you actually have to pay. Yeah. Well, it's cheap, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't expensive. It wasn't overly cheap, but I mean, this is the religious right of filmdom, you know, it's uh, the loudest group. Who makes the biggest noise over this? Who didn't? Who didn't get people to go out to those movies before? Who didn't go to those movies before? You know, it was a low priority until they took it away, which happens a lot with us. Um, but my thing is, is that you know, not only is it sad for LACMA and the kind of films they showed, but the fact that LA only has one revival house in oh. the entire city of Los Angeles, the American Cinematheque, sticky floors. No, not American Cinematheque. It's uh, Beverly, the Beverly, the new Beverly, um, the new Beverly. Because American Cinematheque mostly runs new indie stuff, and you know they have some uh, revival stuff, but yeah. limited. Well, I asked Ian Burney, who is the curator over there, to to join us because Michael Stephen Garrett, who we both stay with at Cannes, uh, is a friend of Ian Burney, and he introduced me to him the last time he was out here. And Ian basically said, "Look, you know, I've, I've got a, I'm still going to be working there part time as a consultant, and I've got a severance to think about, so I'm not really saying anything publicly," <laughs> which is. Completely understandable. I tried to get Michael Govan on, and uh, he's. I was told he was traveling. So I know that uh, there's on Twitter there's a Save Film at LACMA um, account, and they have a whole blog. Uh, save. Uh, I think it's Save Film at LACMA dot com, but we'll place a link to it in the show notes. It's. I just found it incredibly interesting that Martin Scorsese uh, heard about it and wrote a a an open letter to. I guess the board at LACMA, saying, we all know that the film industry, like many other institutions and industries, has to be radically rebuilt for the future, which is what we were just talking about, by the way. This is now apparent to everyone, but in the midst of all this change, the value and power of cinema's past will only increase, and the need to show films as they were intended to be shown will become that much more pressing. So I find it profoundly disheartening to know that a vital outlet for the exhibition of what was once known as quote-unquote repertory cinema has been cut off in L.A., of all places, the center of film production and the land of the, mov- of, of the movie-making itself. A little late. Well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's what struck me about the article you linked to, Sperling, is that they say that over the last ten years, this program has lost one million dollars, which is a hundred thousand dollars a year to subsidize the public showing of classic movies, and they can't get someone to bankroll that, put their name on it for you know a hundred thousand a year, or for ten or twenty years, you can spend two million and get your name on that. It seems like a pretty minimal cost to subsidize the showing of movies. I agree. I mean, I I said forever i can't believe that we live in los angeles and they have not built a theater that is subsidized by the studios by steven spielberg by those guys to the tune of yeah. three or four million dollars a year in subsidy where they have state-of-the-art screening because lacma is not the best screening room either but state-of-the-art screening room with you know a, a variety of movies being shown if they have to show some stuff on video they can if they show stuff on you know whatever prints are available but you would think that a city like this that's about the home of the movies could put together the money to have a proper cinema for people to experience these movies. It's the way I grew up on movies, and it's sorely lacking. It was lacking before LACMA shut down. It's going to be lacking after. It's really an embarrassment for Los Angeles. I want to sound like a pessimist here, but here's where I'm like, well, first of all, I don't think that Los Angeles is technically, what was it that he put it, the home of movie production? I mean... Movies are all made in like Vancouver and Detroit and Albuquerque now, primarily because we have we don't have the tax benefits here or the tax cuts or whatever it is that. But this that is they, where the this is still where the majority is made, and this is still where the money is. Right. There was actually just an art a a piece on National Public Radio about that very thing about how because of the tax incentives other states are offering that movie making has moved off to you know out of state out of California. And they talked about 20th century props, the largest prop house in the world, closing down and auctioning off all of its props and how Culver Studios uh, can't rent out its space. It was kind of an interesting eight-minute uh, that was on uh, that was on NPR. I didn't know you were a socialist, Sperlin. Um, but I live in New York, and we have Lincoln Center, which is probably the nicest movie screen in New York City. We have MoMA. We have Film Forum. And uh, I can't imagine not having at least two or three or four places like that where you can see classic movies. Private funding really is what these things need to have. I don't exactly. think Los Angeles cares about culture and movies, honestly. I think Los Angeles cares about celebrity <laughs> and, and, and money. Well, but the film business should care about film. You I know, agree. enough people in the film business really do care about film. I don't expect Marty Scorsese to write the check himself. But, you know, there are plenty of people with making tens of millions of dollars a year uh, that can cough up, you know, enough money as a group to, you know, do, run a freaking little theater. <laughs> but it's it's the rich who are least likely to part with their money. Part of the problem here is that uh, Los Angeles is not New York, and it's a car culture, and so y you know you can't always make plans to drive all the way over to LACMA to to see a film. You really have to actually schedule that. Unlike in New York, where you could just jump on a subway and be at Film Forum in in half an hour. But part uh, of the experience is again what people are trained to do, and this whole thing that you know it just is not the great culture. It's not the thing. If there was a place where you could go and have a great experience, going to see a double feature for 10 bucks of a great film that you'd never seen on a screen before, projected properly with great sound, you would start to develop the habit of getting in your car and going wherever that was. But that opportunity Absolutely. doesn't exist. And the new Beverly, which tries really hard and is surviving, barely, almost shut down last year, uh, is not really the great experience. You may see a great movie. But there is no place in this town where you're going to have that great experience, and that's really missing. And I think people, if you offer the opportunity, people would eventually get in the habit. If there's no opportunity, there's no way to get the habit going. 
And that's exactly what Mark Swed of the Los Angeles Times said. He is the classical music critic for the LA Times, and he went on a tirade in <laughs> Saturday's paper. And he basically was saying that all of these wonderful programs that were once at LACMA and that LACMA cut or discontinued have sprung up elsewhere as better experiences and better attended. That LACMA's chasing this idea of a date night experience is actually killing it because they just don't know how to hold these types of exhibitions and these types of programs. He writes, saving the film program at LACMA without significant institutional support won't be enough. LACMA has to first care as much about once more bringing together a broad arts community as it does about getting its hands on Eli Broad's bank account. And Eli Broad is a billionaire here in Los Angeles. Well, the, the Disney Concert Hall, I think, has changed the situation for music in this town significantly. And that people, you know, want, it's, it becomes an event when people go down to Disney now. And they want to go downtown to go to that, have that experience, which they didn't before. Well, time will see if, if LACMA's film program is continued or whether the Safe Film at LACMA campaign is successful. But uh, we actually have been warning that if we ever got a voicemail, we would play it here on, <laughs> on, the, on the show. And we have finally gotten a voicemail. And, and uh, I think that it's from Anonymous. We don't know who it's from. But uh, we'll play it. And then afterwards, Karen, I, I would say you very well might want to check to see if your doors are locked. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, how you doing? Uh, big fan, fan of the show uh, since you guys started out. Um, I really like the insider stuff that you guys cover. Um, but I gotta say, I'm really partial to that Karen Woodward uh, lady. Definitely love her insights. Uh, really sexy voice, and from the pictures I've seen, hubba hubba. Um, and there's no disrespect to you, guy, but uh, that Woodward is something else. Keep up the good work, and, uh, you know, keep on listening. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yes, my doors are locked. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to leave us a voicemail that we can play on future episodes, maybe, you know, <laughs> you know somebody could call and talk about how much they like Michael and I. Uh, <laughs> you can do so by calling 888-567-SAND. That's toll-free, 888-567-7263. You have an 800 number? My God, I'm impressed. Yeah, now if people would start using it, we'd really appreciate it. The, the people who have been using it have not been leaving as humorous... Uh, hey, I've been getting the word out. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. Apparently. <laughs> of course, you can always email us or send us news tips to consider for, for a future episode. The address is dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. For links to all of the stories we discussed on the, this episode, visit our website at showbizsandbox.com, and you can look them up in the show notes. Of course, we will place links to all of David Poland's websites and projects. And <laughs> do, uh, are, you, are you publicly announcing uh, the new addition to the Movie City News team? It is not a secret. It is not a secret that... David Poland is going to be a father uh, come either this December or early January. We're right in time for Sundance. Just in time. Yeah. Oh, good point. <laughs> good point. That's a good point. We haven't been accepted by Sundance yet, but we hope to be. <laughs> Name him Bob. <laughs> Bob. Exactly. <laughs> um, we named him Jeff by mistake. It was really ugly. <laughs> oh, there's an inside joke for you. <laughs> I think you're going to have to go over to Tribeca for that one. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, if you want to continue hearing David's thoughts and opinions, you can do so on Movie City News. You can uh, read his writing on The Hot Blog. Of course, you can always follow him on Twitter. His handle is <laughs> David Poland. Of course, you can always find Michael Giltz on michaelgiltz.com and Karen Woodward on Industry Nexus. Michael, anything to add for this week? Well, I do have an announcement to make for the very first time. I've started a Twitter account. I am now tweeting. Oh, my goodness. <gasps> oh, my God. Well, Stop the presses. <laughs> What's your... Uh... Which means now Twitter is officially dead. <laughs> <laughs> What's your so you can uh, find, handle? You can find me at Michael Giltz, or if you go to Twitter and find people, just search for Michael Giltz, G-I-L-T-Z, and I'm sure we'll have a link up on the show notes. Yes, indeed. Hey, now I'm, that, now I'm that you have following them. you now. Indeed, I will oh, follow you as awesome. well. You're a writer in raconteur. How impressive. <laughs> You've got nine followers. <laughs> now I've got ten. Well, I just started. Oh, my God. You were so cute. What are you and in this picture? Ten? Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that was if – you, if you go to my Facebook page or if you go to Twitter and start following me, you'll see a picture from me when I peaked, <laughs> which is at about nine years old. Wait a second. <laughs> You're on Facebook, too? It's not just Twitter? Look at those dimples. Are those dimples? <laughs> oh, I love this shirt, too. Oh, it's so cute. Well, please, please, please check it out and follow me. <laughs> uh, you can also follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook or any one of a number <laughs> of social networking sites. You can find those links to those sites on our website, showbizsandbox.com. If you want to send us news stories, you can do so th- besides via email you could do so through the social bookmarking website delicious just tag your link showbiz sandbox all one word the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each of our episodes is by the popular indie band mgmt or as i like to call them management but apparently that's not that's not right that's not right (laughs) you can visit their website at whoismgmt.com or find them on myspace at myspace.com slash mgmt If you want to see the band in person, you can catch them in Europe. They are playing August 22nd and 23rd. Uh, On the 22nd, they're in Staffordshire at the V Festival at Weston Park. And on the 23rd, they're in Chelmsford, another V Festival, this one at Highlands Park. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure. uh, Yeah, thanks. It was fun. I look forward. I enjoyed it. I didn't get to see your picture, but, you know, now I'm going to have to go look you up on the web. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be looking at uh, some site. I don't know what site that'll be. What social networking site will that be? <laughs> well, if you go to, you uh, go to face, uh, Facebook.com forward slash Karen Woodward. There you go. Well, thank you very much, David. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.